To Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis, and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? It's going well, thank you Ed. The heavens have just opened, where I am calling you from, uh, which, you know, is part and parcel of living in Glasgow, but mm. it's just been such stunning summer weather recently. And now it's all gone a bit topsy-turvy. But you know what? There's something quite lovely about it being very wet outside and being very safe and dry inside. But I was also thinking just to sort of, it really bothered me when I realised that last episode, you were kind enough to let me vent about uh, scenes that poorly represented stand-up in film Mm. and TV. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I was just... I mean, obviously, because that was that was the question, but I <laughs> or the platform. But I felt like, oh, I've just been like overly negative, and having over the past week been able to both go to and do some live comedy, I realised that I hadn't brought up what I think is one of the best representations, in that it manages to be simultaneously humiliating, accurate, and funny, which is a very poignant and pivotal scene in Benjamin, Simon Amstel's first film, Mm. uh, that features Joel Fry as a sort of Simon Amstel stand-in, but kind of like who he used to be. And and I think partly why it works is that it's the most accurate rendering of a comedy club I've ever seen. And it's also little bits of Amstel's own stand-up, but like a nightmare gig. (laughs) I think the problem is, is it's so much easier to, God, uh, reconstruct <laughs> the crime scene than it is necessarily to show something going well. But I just wanted to put that in there. And I also just always want to get people to watch Benjamin because I think it's such a delightful debut. Anyway, my sort of disclaimer, additional point aside, Ed, how are you on your birthday weekend? I am very well, thank you. Yes, uh, it's my birthday this weekend. In fact, the day that this episode goes up, depending on of my edit, it will be in time. Will be my my actual birthday, and yeah, it's been uh, quite nice so far. I drove up to my parents' place, and we had a really nice full English breakfast uh, as a kind of like uh, a mood boost to the weekend, which is mainly going to be about uh, food, I think. Uh, so. Uh, that's been very nice, and also uh, I've got the, the weekend off from work when things have been kind of like very full on this week. So that's that's quite nice as well to know that I can kind of like decompress from that for uh, a couple of days. And yeah, so yeah, it's all just been very very nice, and I'm looking forward to eating lots of cool, interesting food over the next day or so. And on the the Simon Amstel tip, that just reminded me that I saw him performing. In I think it must have been about twenty ten or twenty eleven, he performed at um, Sheffield City Hall, and in terms of like nightmare gigs, like I don't feel like it was particularly bad overall, but he seemed to think the energy in the room was really weird, and he did something which I don't think he does in general, which is after the gig ended, he came back on stage and started talking to people in the front row to kind of like ask them, you know, why. <laughs> they had made the whole thing feel so weird for him. <laughs> and that I've remembered, like that has stuck with me more almost than anything else from the gig was just like how we were all kind of like, obviously the people who seem to be in his eyes, kind of some weird opponents of him or whatever, like people who did really didn't seem to be having a good time at the front of the, the show. Um, weren't enjoying it for whatever reason, but everyone else seemed to be having a nice time and just finding that very clear um, discrepancy between audience and performer that has like stood out, that that has stuck with me for like over a decade at this point. Mm, that's a very him move to do. I think it's also a huge... Yeah, let's have a post-mortem <laughs> of this stand-up gig that I just performed. 
it also that is also just such a huge room and oh, God, I yeah. think it's really hard to gauge how it is going but I think I went to the same gig Ed and but the, oh. thing, the thing that I remember is that a friend of mine came to visit me and we bumped into him in the Blue Moon Cafe which is a uh, I don't know if it's even still going but a, a wonderful central vegetarian vegan haunt and it was after mm. the lunch hour rush uh, and I just sort of acknowledged him in the very empty queue and he sort of <laughs> and he did a big laugh and we had a nice chat so he's just a nice boy <laughs> mm. so we'll go on to the uh, news for this week before we get on to the, the main topic uh, not a particularly heavy news week but there were a few stories that kind of leapt out to me when I was doing my research for this the first of which was the news that Brendan Fraser has been cast in a couple of notable movies, one of which being uh, a new comedy from the director of Palm Springs, about which pretty much nothing is known other than Brendan Fraser's in it. But um, that's quite exciting. I enjoyed that movie and I like the idea that uh, a comedy is being billed as mysterious. <laughs> um, that's just a, a delightful way of approaching comedy. And then... The other news was that uh, he has been cast in an undisclosed role in Killers of the Flower Moon, the currently filming Martin Scorsese Apple Plus film uh, based on the uh, David Gran book that I think I recommended ages ago because uh, it's a really terrific film, non-fiction writing. And I'm just very excited for that. I I'm excited for that movie because I think it's a great story and he's assembled kind of like a fantastic cast for it. And I'm excited that you know Jesse Plemons is going to be a lead in a big, significant movie. But also, you know, I am of the generation of people who grew up where during that brief window where Brendan Fraser was like one of the biggest stars in the world. And it's just nice to see him working again. And, you know, he's been working with some interesting directors recently, most notably Soderbergh on No Sudden Moves, where he's kind of like great as a uh, Orson Welles in Touch of Evil kind of figure like who kind of like looms over the movie uh and then a few years ago you know worked with danny boyle on trust the other movie or the other uh project about uh j paul getty uh, alongside all the money in the world and it's just like so good to see him kind of like showing up in things again absolutely i think the interview with him this feature that came out a little while ago really opened up the discussion about me too and that mm. abuse isn't simply a heterosexual issue to use a slightly clumsy term yeah to, to clarify for people like he talks about him being experiencing abuse like he he wasn't the uh he was not the it yes he was not the perpetrator far from it he was he was the victim and how destabilizing and traumatizing that is because abuse is about power it's not necessarily gender mm. um and i thought that was just an incredibly vulnerable thing to do and it's really nice to see him kind of coming back into the the fray and i'm a little bit concerned about the whale i don't know how sensitive that's going to be just from the mm. premise because it sounds inherently fat phobic and it's like oh yes hollywood these are the people to deal with <laughs> stories about bodies but at the same time it I, you know that he is to continue to get cast and I think will just sort of develop into the most incredible character actor and that he has such a unique trajectory from being, you know, he he's kind of in the same way that you have any, well, I guess sort of similar to like Chris Pine or someone now where it's like, you know, there's not only, there's not just one path, but on a sort of heartthrob path, it was like absolutely gorgeous, but also does like, you know, gods and monsters, as well as um, George of the Jungle, you know. Mm -hmm. And it, I'm just really looking forward to seeing him back where he belongs on screen because I think he still has an incredible presence. Even the little bits of the affair, which I did not think was very good towards the end, but you're just glad to see him. So, Mon Brendan. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then the other story that uh, I came across in the research was the uh, news that... Ethan Cohen uh, of the Cohen brothers, not Ethan Cohen, the uh, <laughs> guy who writes Garfield movies. I think that was, it was there's, there's a Joel Cohen and then Ethan Cohen, and that's kind of like where the whole uh, Bill Murray being in Garfield thing apparently comes from. But uh, Ethan Cohen, uh, according to an interview with Carter Burwell, 
may be done with movies because uh, Joel Cohen uh, is currently finishing up his movie The Tragedy of Macbeth with mm. uh, Francis McDormand and Denzel Washington, which I think is coming out towards the end of this year. And it's the first movie that uh, he has uh, directed without Ethan Cohen. Obviously, his early movie, their early movies, he was the only sole credited director due to like guild reasons. But like they have basically co-directed and co-written all of the movies they've worked on going back to Blood Simple. So this is the first kind of solo project that he has had. And that was obviously very significant when it was announced like two years ago that that movie was being made. But there was not necessarily a sense that, you know, this is the end for the Coen brothers. But uh, according to, again, this interview with Carter Burwell, their uh, composer who's worked with them on, on many projects and who obviously is a, kind of has a career of his own where he's done like tons of great work. Uh, uh, Ethan Cohen apparently is kind of happily working on uh, his theatrical work. You know, he's writing plays and I think, you know, once Broadway is kind of back up to, to its kind of like full capacity, I'm sure he'll be kind of like putting stuff on there. And that, you know, at a certain point, he kind of became maybe just tired of the, the rigours of filmmaking and the technical details of filmmaking and now just kind of wants to do his own thing. And uh, I just thought that was, uh, like, hugely notable because obviously the Coen brothers have been one of the most discussed and celebrated uh, filmmaking filmmakers of the past, like, nearly 40 years of filmmaking. And so it kind of feels weird that they may be functionally over as a partnership and that, you know, it ended kind of with a bit of a whimper. Like, I like The Ballad of Buster Scruggs and everything. I thought it was a really interesting movie and it had, like, some stories in it were absolutely fantastic. But, like, for them, their final project to be a movie that kind of debuted on Netflix and wasn't really kind of seen by a lot of people yeah, it just kind of feels like a, a kind of a weird way for that partnership to have resolved. Yeah, and yet at the same time, it doesn't surprise me mm. that it's that thing of like, I don't want to do this anymore. Because the sense that I've got from them is once they broke in, it's like they kind of just managed to cruise at altitude for a really long time. Mm. And you know, the fact that they just managed to get their films made again and again and again was not a surprise but do you know what I mean it's just that they've managed to be as a team like absolute film stalwarts and that they essentially sort of make the same film again and again but in sort of slightly different tweaks of genre and different perspectives and I think the thing about Inside Llewellyn Davis is it's it's more about a, a sort of finality of of death I think rather than and, and a sort of hypothetical thing but also, is it, it just feels like something one of their characters would do. Just go, I don't want to do this anymore. And then just sort of wanders off. And, you know, fair play. Like, they're not, it's not like some great split of people in their prime. Like, mm. they, they are sort of around the age, if you want to retire, you can retire. <laughs> um and it's nice to, I think it'll be interesting to see in the same way that, you know, the Wachowski sisters have sort of, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a, a like an acrimonious thing. It can just mm. be a like, nah, this isn't what I want to do anymore, but I'm not going to stop you. And in the same way, it's almost like I sometimes have to do a double take because I can't quite believe Jesse Armstrong created Succession. But mm. then, you know, his partnership with Sam Bain and like Peep Show and other stuff they've worked on, it's just very different. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's like, oh, I'm not going to, you know, it's clear that Jesse Armstrong is very proud of what he did with the Peep Show team. And there are little sort of threads of his voice that you can kind of tug on and hear it. But it'll be interesting to see what the landscape's like. I guess it's just for us, in a way, it's more like, oh my God, that's like a huge, that's a huge deal because the Coen brothers have just always been there. Mm. It, it it also you know, you have to kind of look at it in terms of broader trends in the industry and movement away from the kind of movies that they made their name with, which is like you know movies that were not super expensive, kind of strange and offbeat, supported largely by like um, art house cinemas until you know they they kind of like really broke big with Fargo, and then 
you know, they'd never really been a blockbuster team. Like, they kind of stumbled into an accidental blockbuster with True Grit, which I think probably um, gave them, like, the last 10 years of their career in some respect. Like, they could just point to that and say, hey, you know, let us make the movie about the sad guitar player <laughs> because <laughs> we just made a movie that made $175 million. Uh, but, yeah, they, they've always been kind of, like, filmmakers who make movies on a kind of like modest scale but full of ideas and like you do kind of wonder if the sort of weariness about art that you see in Inside Lewin Davis or um, the Liam Neeson section of Ballad of Buster Scruggs where you just kind of wonder if maybe some of that is like creeping into them of just thinking like the industry is changing around us it maybe doesn't have a place for us anymore and maybe Joel kind of feels like I can soldier on with this and he thinks I just don't like to sit in another meeting with yeah. an executive and try and justify why we should get to make a movie considering all we've done um obviously that's speculation on my part but you know if you kind of like look at the last few movies they made it's fairly easy to kind of like draw out parallels and maybe think that yeah it's not down to any like split between them as people it's just like one of them who and i think ethan also has kind of been the one who was the less technical to do like he was the one who studied uh philosophy or whatever mm. and uh kind of was brought in to help uh like maybe he just doesn't have the taste for the actual rigors of, of filmmaking anymore and you know like you say they're both getting into their 60s they're reaching the stage where if they want to not make movies anymore and they've got all the success behind them then it's a perfectly good time to move on. You just mm. kind of think, you know, there'll be fewer opportunities now for people to rank all of the Coen Brothers movies because there'll be a finite number and no new <laughs> ones to kind of feel like you have to slot into the order. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going on to the topic for this week. As you mentioned uh, at the top, it is my birthday. And uh, since it's my birthday episode, uh, we kind of have a uh, freeform uh, discussion about uh, a topic of my choosing and the topic I decided to go for was uh, re-watching movies, why we choose to re-watch movies uh, and just like our own personal experiences with re-watching movies. Uh, this was brought on by the fact that last week uh, before we recorded the episode uh, a week ago I re-watched Lost in Translation, the Sofia Coppola movie, which mm -hmm. I haven't seen previously since about 2004 four or five whenever it showed up on sky movies uh, around about then and uh, when i first saw it i remember not really liking it at all um i remember finding it kind of very slow and kind of like navel gazy and like not much happened i didn't really connect with the story and i have always been very vocal not in a i would like to think not in an obnoxious way but like whenever the discussion kind of like came about, about lost in translation I was always very much of the, like, I can't believe all these people like this movie. Like, I think it's just, like, just so completely overrated. And, but over the years, like, as Sofia Coppola has, like, released more movies, and I watched all of them, and at the very least liked them, and in many cases loved them, uh, I started to think, mm, maybe I would like Lost in Translation again if I watched it again. So I've been meaning to rewatch it for a very long time, and so I rewatched it last week, and... I still don't love it, but I definitely came away liking it a great deal more. And so that got me thinking about like why we rewatch movies, um, the experiences we have with them. Uh, before we kind of like dig into that, what's your general opinion on Lost in Translation, uh, Emily, to uh, to get it on the record so that people know where we're coming from? <laughs> so that they can uh, accurately hyperlink Wikipedia. I watched it when it came out and I remember it so clearly because it's one of the only films that I've watched in a cinema in Leicester Square in London mm. and like an, I think it was an Odeon at that point but it was like quite a small intimate screen and I remember being totally entranced by it because there's something incredibly powerful as a sort of teenager who spends a lot of time daydreaming particularly to watch like a female gaze and I think a lot of the age gap issues 
didn't come through so clearly to me because it's so much more from a woman's perspective. And I'm mm. not saying that there isn't anything so problematic there, but it didn't feel like this overtly sexual sleazy thing. It felt much more of a kind of mentor mentee, like two souls who are meant to just meet at this point in time and then never meet again. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something so kind of dreamy and I'm going to use the word. I feel like every sort of cultural uh, theorist and uh, art critic uses it at some point, but there's something so gorgeously liminal about it. And mm -hmm. I think the, the sort of different ways that um, Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray's characters respectively sort of like engage with Japan and that I think there's so much of Sofia Coppola in Scarlett Johansson's character where she's sort of quite placid and, and kind of like on the fringes and wants to be very respectful and finds that she's most um, at peace in these very like, you know, beautiful idyllic quiet places without people and amongst nature and is not fussy and which is obviously you know the complete opposite to Anna Faris's uh, fantastic Cameron Diaz-esque uh, impression and that's mm. sort of like constantly being on the fringes and being an outsider and then the flip side with Bill Murray being in the city is that you know oh you know because he's a boomer it's often quite racist and I haven't seen On the Rocks, which I think would be really interesting to watch to see Bill Murray sort of as her fatherly kind of stand-in. I don't know what it is about Wes Anderson and Sofia Coppola who are like, Bill Murray's my dad. Um, <laughs> but I remember, but the thing that I find so clear about watching Lost in Translation was really enjoying it at the time, but then also thinking, I never want to watch that again. And I haven't. Mm. And I've watched other Sofia Coppola films and more than once. But there was almost it was almost like, that's not a film to re-watch, in my opinion, because the whole point is that it's this chance meeting. And I mm. just kind of want to have this chance meeting with this film and kind of leave it there. Because you know what, Ed? I'm scared that if I watched it again, I'd be like, oh my God, this is so overbearing. Like, uh, you know, he is being an absolute sleaze. Look at all of this. And I think I'd rather kind of keep my memory of it than delve into it again, because I'm honestly exhausted with with the majority of other stuff that's just you know that's just horrendous and uh my wonderful friend chris thorburn who is one of the funniest people around went viral with a tweet of his that was this fantastic i think you know the one i'm talking about uh yep. which is a little video about oh what you've never seen summer sex school high or <laughs> summer sex high school oh it's great it's really great and then it, it perfectly encapsulates that feeling of being a millennial and watching stuff that you remember really fondly from the early noughties and being like, oh God, how was this? You know, the reckoning of like, I didn't think it was that bad, like raunchy maybe, but this is terrible. Cause I had that experience during lockdown with Euro trip. Mm -hmm. I was like, I remember it being a plucky muck about sort of thing. And it was like, oh no, this is like the worst possible stereotypes. Although there is a pretty funny moment with Vinnie Jones on top of a bus double-decker bus but that's that's about all it has going for it and I think it's just that like sometimes it's like is a rewatch dredging stuff up or should some stuff be just left in the past because I'm mm. more you know I'm interested in kind of like engaging with cultural mores and like various standards and like looking at various things in the 60s and 70s and being like well why was this so so strongly reacted to at the time and seeing like, oh God, you know, we are actually still quite, you know, oh, what a, what a prudish culture we were. But now I'm just like, oh God, why is everyone so racist? Why does this keep happening? Misogynist, why does this keep happening? But then at the same time, it's like, it feels much easier to be able to levy these sort of criticisms at 60s and 70s because I wasn't alive then. And understanding mm. now I'm getting to the point of an age where I'm like, oh God, you know, at least I could admit that I'm humiliated by these things. Whereas I think maybe boomers were a bit more like, it was the time, we don't talk about it. Let us be, <laughs> it was it was the seventies. Um, so yeah, I think, so that's how I feel about Lost in Translation. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think um, you, you were saying there about like rewatching movies and kind of feeling like it, dredges stuff up or, or whatever i think like a big part of it is that when you rewatch a movie that 
you know you loved as a kid and that you or, or when you were younger and that you suddenly realized there's a lot of like bad stuff about it is that you are not just engaging with it you're kind of engaging with yourself like you have to reckon with the fact oh i have changed as a person and like stuff that uh, i found to be perfectly harmless fun when uh, i was a kid no longer strikes me that way or the world around us has changed and now stuff that you think oh you you kind of get to that oh you couldn't do that now um which i try not to kind of like give in to too much because then kind of like well yeah but they're not they're not making the movie now <laughs> like they're making it they made it then so like you don't have to but you do end up kind of watching stuff and, and that's I think one of the interesting things when people like write articles about, you know, oh, I watched Friends and it's all super homophobic and you kind of like watch it and you think, oh yeah, there was just like so much gay panic stuff and yeah. there was so much like just saying something was gay as a pejorative and you kind of like realising how much of that stuff was just endemic to like the 90s and the 2000s and totally. yeah, it's probably best that we moved on past that. But uh, yeah, again, with like Lost in Translation, the thing I found interesting in rewatching it was that my reasons for not totally loving it now are kind of the opposite of what I didn't like about it then, mm. which is that when I was 19 or so, like I didn't like it because it's like, oh, it's so like languid and not much happens and it's all about mood and like, you know, all this stuff. And now it's kind of like, I'm the, the stuff that annoys me about it is like, sometimes feels like too much is happening. Yeah. <laughs> like, a lot of the best stuff in that movie is about how well Sophia Coppola crafts that sense, like you say, of a, a liminal sense of, um, particularly as as someone who's like done a lot of international travel over the years, mm. like the feeling of being jet lagged, where you kind of feel as if you just kind of you're you're ten seconds out of sync with the entire world, mm. and like you're not totally in the right headspace. I think it it captures that brilliantly in a way that I hadn't really experienced at all when I first saw it. Like, I think I'd been to America like twice and like I was young so like jet lag didn't bother me <laughs> and yeah. so now when you know Bill Murray gets off the plane and he's just like completely exhausted and like oh yeah I know how that feels yeah. like, I've I've flown into Manchester airport at six in the morning after being awake for 18 hours or whatever and just mm-hmm. totally wiped out and completely not connecting to the world I totally understand that um yeah, there's just like so much more of like my life experience over the last 18, uh, 17, 18 years, like means that I just bring new eyes to it and suddenly relate to a lot more stuff that's in it. But also just on a, as a film viewer, like my tastes over the, over that time have changed quite a lot. I'm way more forgiving slash eager to see movies that aren't about story, that are more about mood and about creating a creating a vibe over everything else and just kind of like placing you with characters. And so the stuff now that really kind of irks me is the stuff that like feels too much like Bill Murray doing bits with Japanese people. Yeah. And like you say, like uh, the, the contrast I think that it draws between how the two characters engage with Japan and Japanese people and Japanese culture are like really good. And they do heighten that sense of age difference between them. But um, some of the, like the scene of him with the uh, sex worker and all the lip, my stocking stuff is just that. That's just terrible. <laughs> just like, goes goes far too far into the, that goes from, that goes beyond like, oh, the character is kind of a little bit racist and is kind of having a, a weird interaction with the Japanese person to the entire construction of this scene is kind of racist and that it really shouldn't be in the movie. And I kind of feel like that's just, just, just a sign of like how much I have changed as a film viewer and what I'm looking for from a movie. And, and also, like, since then, like, I think the first time I watched it, I hadn't seen any of, like, Wong Kar Wai's movies. Yeah. And... There's obviously a huge influence there, uh, particularly the ending, which, you know, mm. it, it draws a lot from In the Mood for Love and things like that. So I have now been conditioned to like movies that are really just about people connecting and then kind of like drifting away from each other in a way that I absolutely was not when I was kind of like in my late teens, early 20s. It's interesting thinking of my teen years because that was still very much the kind of three for however much vhs and dvd deals at hmv portion of my life Mm. 
and mm-hmm. you know I would only have a, a small collection and so you'd end up rewatching stuff like you didn't yeah. you didn't you didn't have an endless like archive and scroll and be like what am I going to watch you're like oh cool I have like <laughs> at the time being like I have 15 VHSs and however many DVDs and I still have my giant um DVD sleeve you know where you, mm-hmm. you take them out of the packet the the um packages and and um put them in in sleeves and yeah. there's something where I just can't quite bear to get rid of them number one because I don't really have the covers anymore so what would they just go in the bin and <laughs> um mm-hmm. and eventually I'll get a um an external dvd player again just to watch them but like I really do need to get rid of the Woody Allen ones because I'm certainly never going to rewatch those again <laughs> but looking through them and the ones that I've watched again and again a lot of it is comedy Mm. and something that I actually would really like to rewatch and see how it holds up compared to my memory of it is Orange County. Oh, yeah. With Jack Black and Colin Hanks. Note that very few of the women that you will see in films last longer than about five years, which is Mm. very depressing. But I remember that being a really nice two-hander and really funny and Get Over It is also fantastic i watched that not too long ago and it's a really nice and overlooked and forgotten bit of the sort of like oh clueless did super well let's remake loads of austin and shakespeare into like teen teen rom-coms and i don't think it's as genius as 10 things i hate about you but get over it still has this kind of midsummer night's dream slightly on the nose i think cisco is in it as well which i always (laughs) find (laughs) <laughs> that sounds about right that sounds about right right but what i did watch actually on a jack black theme because i really got into everything that he was doing um was school of rock and the thing mm. that got me about that was that i remember watching it at the time and there's a bit where he sort of uh coaches one of his uh students because uh, she's one of the singers and she's concerned about herself because she's fat and he says look i love eating i'm fat as well uh it doesn't get in the way of us rocking like you're like Aretha Franklin and and I remember at the time thinking like oh that's really cool but I actually like got teary watching it now because I thought fuck me there was absolutely this we still haven't come very far in that sort of representation you know just Mm. literally two characters being like we have this thing in common and and it's all right it doesn't have to be a doesn't have to be big deal it's not like oh we're gonna get you know it's like no it's more about what we can do and not so much about what we look like or more accurately how others perceive us and that that's still probably the only thing out there still that a lot of kids would have access to so I felt this weird thing of like feeling very lucky to at least have that little seed planted when when it did even if it didn't you know come to fruition until quite a bit later but yeah I think comedy's a weird one obviously because you can really gauge a culture uh, like a culture's standards by even what it considers like raunchy or out there not even just like you know because because then you can kind of see like oh these are the values and this is what they're subverting or pushing the envelope or whatever but in terms of like things like dramas and other films I watch I mean I think Phantom Thread is probably still the film I've watched the most times in my adult life mm-hmm. and considering mm-hmm. that it only came out what in 2017 <laughs> yeah or well, 2018 for you as well being oh, God, in, yeah. over in the UK yeah no you're right that oh, bloody hell but for me it's just you know there are certain songs that you can put on at any point and you're like this works when I'm waking up when I'm coming back home when I'm going out when I'm coming back when it's the afters you know all this kind of stuff Phantom Thread is that film for me because I think it just manages to mix so many weird genres together and it is a cosmic gumbo. <laughs> it moves <laughs> to the beat of jazz. And I, I do find something new in it each time because I think it is just an incredibly luxe, rich sort of experience. Um, mm. And I think, it, I think it's also because the first time I watched it, I had no idea what the fuck PTA was trying to pull until the very end. And I was like, oh my God, this is genius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I love going back to it and watching it again, um, just to sort of like find, well, literally find the phantom thread, find all of the scenes and how he's like put this incredibly complex thing together. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that that definitely is 
something that brings me back to certain movies is ones where when you're watching it for the first time, you really don't know where it's going. And then yeah. you get to rewatch it again. And it does feel like an entirely different thing because once you've seen how the whole story unfolds the second time through or the third time through, fourth time through you're like watching it and it's like a totally different experience mm-hmm. i kind of had that a little bit because one of the things i've been doing um over the last kind of like week partly in kind of like it's because it, it kind of touches on this theme but also just because i thought that'd be a fun thing to do is i've been re-watching all of wes anderson's movies and mm-hmm. i'm only two in so far but one of the things i really like about like watching his early movies is like they particularly bottle rocket and rushmore is like they feel so formless as you're watching them like they really don't move like films that you're used to they don't really seem to have much in the way of a three-act structure or even a five-act structure like they're all these kind of like weird collections of these little episodes and then they all they kind of like build these kind of like great moments at the end to the uh heist of the factory at the end of bottle rocket and then to his uh to max fisher's kind of like big vietnam war play at the end of rushmore but um as you're going along and you're watching it for the first time you really have no idea where those movies are are going even though they are kind of in recognizable genres um re-watching them and you can you knowing where they're going you can really appreciate how well like certain things are layered into it like the relationships in rushmore between max and all of the various people around him like his antagonistic relationship with uh, magnus the scottish student um uh, ending in kind of like one of the loveliest little exchanges in his uh, filmography which is like uh where he's like i always wanted to be in one of your fucking your stupid fucking plays or whatever and him just going i know you do <laughs> just kind of really kind of like lovely little moment um yeah that, that that's one of the things i think that can make rewatching movies particularly ones that are kind of like maybe a little shaggier or that are idiosyncratic in how they play out and the rhythms they follow because they're cosmic jumbo set to the beat of jazz. Um, <laughs> they can really be very rewarding because you, you suddenly get a newer appreciation for like how they're written and how they're paced. Absolutely. And I also really love watching uh, horror films again, mm-hmm. partly to reassure myself that it's not real. <laughs> <laughs> like, it wasn't just this one thing that I saw this one time like it's sort of like oh yeah okay but I think also for things like Ghost Watch mm. and then going back and seeing oh yeah no these are incredible in camera effects similar yeah. with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind that's something I love mm. watching and I haven't rewatched for a while I think partly because it's you know, obviously, because it's about memory and forming memories. And then each time I watch it and, and coming back to these films where it's like, oh, what response do I have to it now at the point that I am in my life? Similar to what you were saying about Lost in Translation and the different sort of feelings about what decisions characters make and who you align with more. And on that theme, of course, I'm going to talk about Six Feet Under because it's been far too long without me mentioning it um, <laughs> in, a, in an episode. And... I found it so interesting watching it when I was a teenager and then, oh God, being in my early thirties now and who I sort of align with more or who I grow to understand and the perspectives. Cause I used to think I was like a real Claire and, mm-hmm. and then sort of towards my late twenties, I really um, related more to Brenda. Mm-hmm. And then now I'm like, oh, I think like Maggie is just kind of great. Whereas before I used to find her sort of like quite literally holier than thou. And then it's like, oh no, that's actually someone who's been through like deep pain and how my own experience of grief has shifted the sort of deeper understanding of what's happening. Um, yeah. But also I think I'm kind of like, I think I'm sort of a Brenda Sun, David Moon, Claire Rising, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say. But that there are so many different dynamics that all feed into each other that it's just, there's always something interesting to go back to and be like, Oh God. Yeah. No, I see that in a different way now. Mm. Yeah. I think um, Royal Tenenbaums is one of those for me that uh, I will be rewatching as, as part of this kind of little run uh, that I think it's going to be really interesting to see how I feel about that. Cause like that's one where my relationship to that movie just changed so massively between watching it for the first time on DVD 
uh, in like, again, like 2004, 2005, basically around the time I moved to Sheffield and was near a FOP. Mm-hmm. Um, anywhere where I could pick up a, a DVD for like two quid, <laughs> then suddenly uh, my collection of DVDs grew and the stuff that I would just kind of like have on in the background when I was writing essays or whatever or before going out um, grew a little bit. And uh, there, there's a bunch of movies that I really think are very strongly from that era. Um, but like the, I remember watching Royal Tenenbaums for the first time, uh, sort of like, you know, 19, 20 years old and being like, oh, you know, this is like really funny. It's really witty. It's really urbane and sophisticated. And, you know, I like appreciating like, you know, how kind of like wry it all is. And then like the older I get and the more I begin to relate to the adult characters the adult uh tenenbaum kids and like their disappointments because like you know like my life is 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 largely fine in a lot of ways but you know you still have your disappointments and things that go wrong along the way and so like you start to identify more with them and suddenly like the melancholy streak of the movie just becomes so much more pronounced as you're kind of like becoming as you as you age and as you kind of like experience some of the things that the characters have gone through and like the last time that i rewatched road tenenbaums i think was not long after my sister died and like the line it's been a rough year dad like yeah i was crying like a minute before it happened because i knew it was coming up yeah. and like that was not my reaction to that movie when I saw it in 2004, <laughs> you know, it was very, that was a thing that had, I had changed greatly between those watches. And that's, yeah. Uh, I imagine it's just gonna be nothing but tears when I watch that again sometime this week. Yeah. Oh, love. I feel you. Like I, I'm sort of, it's funny, the sort of like anticipatory and an- anticipatory. Yeah. I'm saying that sort of right. Aren't I? Um, mm-hmm. Cause it sort of floated into my head the other day that, I'd sort of quite like to rewatch a many uh, love is a many splendid thing, um, mm. which has some very awkward, not particularly um, it's racially insensitive uh, casting, but it was one of my nana, my mum's mum's favorite films because it was being shot at the time they were living in Hong Kong. Oh wow! And I remember getting a chance to watch it, subtitling it. And it's such a gorgeously shot love story that's actually quite grounded in sort of a lot of um, a lot of kind of unexpected moments. For example, our our heroine, our protagonist, is incredibly independent, but not you know, and isn't looking for love, but it sort of finds her, and then is taken away from her very tragically. And it is just this kind of like, oh God, it's just heart wrenching. Of course, the song is beautiful. And and I remember just like weeping because it's just that real kind of like, it hits you right in the melodrama, a bit like Brief Encounter, you know, where mm. it's just like, you can't help but sort of be uh, in awe of kind of how much emotion and how repressed it is as well, but like in the movie yeah. for love. But it yeah. occurred to me, like, I don't know how I'm going to feel watching that again because I remember talking to my mum about it after watching and she was oh yeah and no, she loved it and it was really beautiful isn't it and, and this kind of thing and also It's a Wonderful Life which I haven't, mm. I haven't watched for a long time and part of me is again my mum introduced me to it and I was like eight years old and she found it on at Woolworths remember that kids only 90s kids will know uh, on VHS for something like a fiver and she was like we're watching this as soon as we get home and I was like okay and you get it um I was like, black and white like, shut up and watch it and I absolutely loved it and but the funny thing is is that now I'm like oh yeah that was about like you know it's about someone who's thinking of committing suicide mm. and I haven't you know watched it since my own sort of suicidal experiences have I been kind of doing that on purpose or Will it be actually life affirming? Because again, that's something that's kind of a seasonal rewatch. Yeah. Um, and I haven't really done that yet. Because I kind of found my own seasonal rewatches. Again, the aforementioned Phantom Thread just seems to suit <laughs> suit anything. Um mm, good New Year's movie. 
Yeah, it really is. Because what's the? T- I can't remember the time that you have to start playing it to, for it to sync up with the New Year's scene. But I might do that this year. But it's these things where it's like trying to figure out why you do or don't want to rewatch something. Is it going to mm. hit a bit too hard? Is it going to emotionally yeah. slap just a bit too much? And it's like, at what point is this helping me have an experience? And at what point am I pouring salt into the wound? You know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. Because, like, dr- uh, movies, uh, you know, they are, they're the closest thing we have to, like, dreams. And dreams are so tied into, like, memory, things we experience and trying to kind of, like, understand them through that way. So, like, there's a whole kind of, like, maelstrom of dream movie memory kind of like mixing together so like whenever you rewatch a movie it does kind of disturb that equilibrium a little bit and sometimes it's great and you watch a movie and it's like oh man this is as good if not better than i remember and sometimes it's like oh no <laughs> this is this is bad and it is kind of like sullied my uh my memory of it uh, that's the reason why i've not rewatched uh song of the south since uh, I was a young child, you know, just don't want those happy memories to be, uh, to be, to be ruined. Um, I think that's wise. Mm, yeah. Although, yeah, that, that's, that's a weird one. I think of whenever, like, cause, cause obviously we had all of the Disney, the major Disney movies on VHS, um, when they were released in like the early eighties and uh, sorry, the, the late eighties and early nineties, and even some obscure ones like the three Cavaleros, and we had Song of the South on VHS and it was just part of the rotation. It's like, okay, so we watched Sword of the Stone last, so let's grab the next one on the pile or whatever. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so it's like really weird years later being like, oh, right, yeah. That movie was pretty horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also just really boring. But, you know, as a kid, you have a fairly low bar for quality. So, like, if it's got a catchy song you'll you'll just kind of watch it what do you think are the movies that you've seen the most in your life oh that's such a good question i guess and i'm i'm sort of uh i'm vetoing uh kid rewatching because i think that's just a sort of level of repetition that's about development more than anything else but yeah just to throw that in there it's probably like mary poppins and chitty chitty bang bang with the mm-hmm. two that i'd sort of watch over and over again on vhs pop star never stop never stopping is up there Mm-hmm. The Big Lebowski, yeah. yeah, that that so endlessly quotable, right? And it was just one that kind of, it's it's a good film to watch in a group because I think yeah. the films I would rewatch often w- was that sort of hazy time in your sort of mid teens where you can drink alcohol at home but you can't go to the pub. Mm-hmm. So often, what you would do as a group activity was like, well, we'll watch films and talk over yeah. them. But again, it was still like, oh no, this is a really good film. Donnie Darko was one that I just hadn't ever seen anything quite like that or that, mm-hmm. or that made me feel in the way that it did. Anything with Tobey Maguire because I think as I've already mentioned um, I was a little bit in love with him and mm. you know he's divorced <laughs> it's not like that's a uh, no I'm, 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 I'm joking so yeah like the Cider House Rules and the Ice Storm are two that really stuck with me I think because again it was this sensation of like these are really adult films and they're also films about people not knowing what the right thing to do is Mm. and watching that when you're like 14 or 15 is inherently comforting plus I just love Christina Ricci and the Ice Storm yeah I love everyone in that film well that's the selection of mine Ed what about you uh I think the original oh not even the original the uh the special editions of Star Wars Mm -hmm. uh because when those came out on VHS, um, I guess that would have been like summer of 1998 or whatever, um, I would just watch all three of them every day. Mm. Um, I, I just like, they really got their claws into me that summer. And so like, I definitely watched that. Uh, those those three movies a ton. Uh, the Matrix was just something, that was one of the ones I had on, on VHS, like my kind of like small collection of VHS uh, movies that I would just, like, watch all the time. Um, particularly, you know, that that whole, like, four-year stretch between the release of the first movie and the release of the sequels when everything in pop culture had to 
parody the Matrix in some way or another, from Shrek to uh, Lenny Henry's uh, sketch show that came out from around about that time. Everyone had to have a Matrix take. Um, it was just something that everything was constantly reminding me that the Matrix was a thing I could be watching. <laughs> so <laughs> I, that was something I would be putting on uh, all the time. The Terminator, the first Terminator I had on VHS and just like wore out because I just loved how scuzzy it felt. I loved the, the mythology of it. I loved how kind of like genuinely unsettling it was, I think partly because of the low budget, which lends kind of like a a seediness to it. Um and or like a danger to it that uh, isn't necessarily apparent if you watch it digitally now, but also the, um, like this, you know, um, H bomber guy did a whole video about like scan lines in VHS. Like they really do kind of like add this air of this kind of like fuzzy haziness to it that makes them feel even more like memory. Mm. Um, so like that was like in constant rotation when I moved to uni, uh, anchorman, was oh. very much in the rotation quite a lot. Oh, same. Hard same. Again, quotable and... Um, good in a group. Yeah, really good ensemble watch. Spirited Away was uh, a big one. That was like the first anime that I got really, really into. Um, that wasn't like, you know, weird French animes from the 80s, like Ulysses 31 that I remember watching like super early in the morning on Sky 1 when I was a child. But that was one that I bought, again, cheap at FOP. And just like was so totally enraptured with the first time I watched it and loved the atmosphere and the mood of it. So it was, and also the music is lovely. So, like, if I was uh, looking for something to have on in the background while I was like reading or uh, writing something, like that would be a good one. Like, a kind of like phase in and out of watching and just listening to. Mm. Um, I think of some other ones. Uh, Lebowski's definitely up there. I think for me, like the stuff that I've watched the most, though, uh, would be television in terms of just like constantly rewatching, and it's specifically Futurama and The Simpsons. Oh, Futurama, absolutely the same. Like I remember saving up all of my allowance so I could get the first series on VHS. <laughs> yeah, those were definitely, particularly again when I was at uni, and you know, like I made friends at, at uni and was like going out and doing things all the time but for the first month or so i think um it was very dislocating as i think it is for a lot of people uh and so i would just kind of like have the simpsons on as kind of like a comfort thing and so yeah definitely rewatched seasons three through eight of the simpsons a hell of a lot of times <laughs> uh and futurama as well because like by, i think by then all four series was out on dvd and i would definitely have those on just like pretty much constantly and so phrases from that would just constantly enter my mind all the time mm. um which is, is very pleasant it's a very pleasant way to live um but yeah I, I think those if i was trying to think of like a pantheon of stuff i've watched the most and also I guess this one this one is has the same kind of like caveat as as you with like watching stuff as a kid like all of the Disney's but also weirdly fried green tomatoes at the whistle stop cafe mm. because that was one that I remember my mum watching a lot and oh. when you're a child and your mum's watching a movie you just kind of like sit down and say okay I'll watch as well you, yeah. and I that's a movie that I feel like I should rewatch as an adult because every time I hear people talk about that movie like how there's apparently cannibalism in it <laughs> I have no memory of that. But uh, apparently there's like a, a subplot of that movie about cannibalism. And like it's just something that I have absolutely no memory of. But I have seen that movie like conservatively like 20 times or something. <laughs> it was just something that would would get put on. You know what that has just brought back to me is because it felt like it was on every Sunday on Channel 4 for about five mm. years. Legends mm. of the Fall. Oh yeah, I've yeah. watched that so many times. I don't know why. I guess because it's such a long film, it takes such a chunk out of the schedule that you can just like set the tape going, and everyone can like go for a swift one, <laughs> be back in time mm. for the news. I don't know, but yeah, that like big sweeping sort of novel of a film. I don't know how I feel watching it now because I think like it must be a little bit, must be quite hokey and a bit hammy, mm. but like lovely Julia Ormond and you know. The, the big terrors and sadness and very young Brad Pitt and 
Oh my. But yeah, it's it's those ones that sort of would just keep coming up in the schedules. <laughs> that I'm like, I didn't yeah. even choose to watch this. This is just the only thing that's on and I can't possibly turn off the TV and read a book. Don't make me do that. The injustice. Yeah, I think um, Titanic is probably one of those for me as well. Mm. Like once that hit television uh, and probably like, I guess, 1999 or something, whenever people like Channel 4 or whatever started airing it. That was one that, you know, whenever it was on, like, I'd tune in, be like, oh, whereabouts are we? Okay, it's like half an hour until the iceberg hits. Okay, let's watch until that happens. And then just getting sucked in and carried all the way through to the end of the movie because, you know, for all of, you know, its its flaws, that movie is just, like, intensely watchable and is just this, like, huge sweeping blockbuster that really kind of, like, carries you along. And I find it very very hard to resist the kind of like propulsive quality that uh, James Cameron brings to that. Mm. So we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot Vs. Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Liam Williams of Ladhood Capital, please like, one of my favourite comedians and, yeah, I'm going to say it, sorry, content creators, but he's a, he's a multi-hyphenate threat. It's a lot to fit in. He, you know, whatever medium he's in, he's, he absolutely smashes it. His first novel, Homes and Experiences, um, I managed to get through it in like a week. And in terms of what we were talking about, in the episode with the main topic about kind of reminiscing he manages to jump between a couple of different timelines kind of people our age and the difference between sort of like going to uni and where we're sort of at now and the sort of disparate millennial experience he also manages to touch on capitalism tech uh sort of growing up as a as a man in Yorkshire and what that does to your emotional state it's incredibly funny and it follows a guy who is on a business tour of like various places in Europe for a company that is suspiciously like a uh, holiday rentals company which I won't name um but he kind of goes on this almost um quixotic journey into self-awareness and it's just so funny but ends up being really moving as well and I absolutely loved it so that is Homes and Experiences by Liam Williams. Cool I will recommend a movie that I watched uh, this week that uh, I've been excited to see ever since it came out earlier this year and everyone started kind of like raving about it uh, which was David Pryor's The Empty Man, which is not a superhero story about someone who gets bitten by a radioactive boy. Um, <laughs> although it's not not that, now that I say it out loud. Um, uh, the Empty Man is a very loose adaptation of uh, a graphic novel, and it is about a police detective who investigates a series of disappearances that seem to be tied to a cult that worships a supernatural being called The Empty Man, um it's an incredibly strange uh horror movie that is kind of preoccupied with the notion of language as a disease as mm. like putting ideas into people's heads as a way of changing who they are um in ways that are really fascinating um uh, it's also about kind of like the construction of reality to the point where you don't know what's tr- what what is true anymore uh, so it deals with a lot of very heady themes. It's it's soaked with atmosphere and it's beautifully shot. I believe David Pryor um, has a kind of uh, professional relationship with uh, David Fincher um, previously. And I think you see some of that rigor in his framing and, and the way that he approaches the scares of it all. And it's just an incredibly intriguing, scary and engrossing uh, experience um, it also has a fantastic but brief uh, role for Stephen Root as the kind of head of the cult. Um, and it's just delightful having him talk about the notion of repetition and stripping meaning from languages and kind of going on these slightly florid speeches. Um, so that's The Empty Man, which is now on HBO Max in the US. And I think is where a lot of people are discovering it for the first time because it's, its release 
uh, cinematically was kind of uh, a casualty of the Fox Disney buyout. Um, and I think people should check it out. It's, a, it's an intensely strange and interesting movie. Ooh. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player Friends, Spotify, all the usual places, raters, reviewers, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We're back next time with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye.